everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. All right. Hey, everybody. We are now formally starting our awesome podcast slash webinar that we're sort of transitioning to calling our events podcasts. It seems like that's the term that's used now more frequently with Mark Driscoll. We're really excited. Uh, Mark and I connected several months ago, I think, through um, just some research that I was doing. I was very excited about what he's doing in his business and life and and you see his website here, uh, Tasting the Future. And we're going to just have a little interview here, make it very informal. I want to say right up front, if you guys have questions, I'd actually rather have you provide the questions to Mark than me. So um, if you've got them, put them in the, the question box. Uh, Mark and Areeb are behind the glass, as we say, and being sort of producers here. And they'll look at the questions. Mark and I will probably just keep interacting with each other and talking. So Mark, make sure to tell us or read if we've got a question and we'll just make sure we get it asked. So yeah, sounds good. Let's, let's just start out and say, how are you doing today, Mark? What's uh, what's it like in your part of the world? You told me a little bit more earlier, but just tell us about where you're at and what, what the weather's like. I'm in Northern Colorado. And it's a beautiful day today after we had rain last night. So that's a little bit about me for the day. Well, it's um, quite a time difference. So it's nine o'clock in the evening here. I'm based in the uh, UK, about three and a half, four hours uh, west of London. Uh, so on the English-Welsh uh, borders. So. Out of my window, I can see uh, the Malvern Hills. Um, nothing like probably the mountains you have in the United States, but beautiful nevertheless. Uh, spring has been quite late here in the UK um, and looking forward to some spring sunshine and uh, a bit more spring-like temperatures. It's, we had quite a sharp uh, frost uh, here uh, this morning. Um, and as I said to you earlier, Wayne, I've had quite a long day. I was up six o'clock this morning, uh, presenting at a conference that was happening um, in Hanoi, Vietnam, um, obviously virtually um, with that too. By the way, I didn't share it earlier as you said that about Hanoi, but unfortunately I have sort of negative images of Hanoi because of the Vietnam War, which I'm a, a product of that of that, age, that time frame. And, but yet I, I always wanted to maybe go there. So um, I've been to um, Saigon in what was South Vietnam, but, but not now up in, in, in the Hanoi. Um, but it's, it's kind of a, a long-term goal. So tell us about Tasting the Future and what was your main kind of motivation behind starting your company? Well, I set up um, Taste in the Future uh, about five, five and a half years ago now. So my background is in agriculture and environmental science. I've worked on sustainable food systems for 20, 25 years, uh, working predominantly within the uh, civil society sector. So with NGOs, I spent 10 years working with WWF, that's not the World Wrestling Federation, WWF, this is the World uh, Wildlife Fund um, organization. Uh, another kind of eight or nine years working with another international nonprofit called Forum for the Future. Um, and then five or six years ago, I, I kind of decided, you know, I wanted to follow my own path. I had developed lots of uh, relationships with um, stakeholders across uh, across the world um, and I really wanted to align with my own passions um, and uh, and values so I really set up Taste in the Future as a sustainable food systems 
consultancy, basically um, working with businesses, for example, to embed sustainability within food and beverage uh, businesses. And the other part of uh, Taste in the Future is uh, working to support other organizations with their food system strategies, uh, influencing policy and practice at a national, subnational, and I also work at an international uh, level. Yeah, and I've kind of, I've, I've kind of loved it. I, I've really loved the, uh, the, the freedom to follow my own values, to be a bit pick and choosy with the types of organisations that I work with. Really keen to work with forwarding, uh, forward-thinking businesses, companies, organisations, governments that really are passionate about and understand the need uh, to transform um, our food uh, systems. And I thought Taste in the Future in terms of a name, I do a lot of uh, horizon scanning, trends analysis, looking at the kind of key trends, not just in the next year or two, but in the next five, 10 or 15 years. Um, because organizations have to understand those and the risks and opportunities that presents a business um, in order to be able to then maximize the opportunities from those trends or minimize the risks. So tasting the future is about that kind of visioning process, looking into the future with a future nod to the taste of food and, and the kind of foods that we might be eating in that future world which is you know fit for the future uh, within planetary health limits so so that's where the kind of name uh, comes from as well wayne cool let's back up a little bit and talk about your past before um let's go let's go all the way back uh, where'd you grow up again in the similar area and and tell us a little bit about your, your family growing up. So um, I, I grew up in the county of Devon, which is in the uh, southwest part of um, England. Um, uh, quite a remote area of the country between the coast, uh, about 10 miles from the Atlantic coast. So a spectacular coastline with cliffs of six, eight hundred feet high, um, and between the coast uh, uh, and the wild moors of uh, southwest England. Um, I actually grew up, as I say, in a very remote location. It was in the middle of a uh, of a forest. Um, so my parents moved there in the in the early sixties uh, to an old railway cottage right in the middle of, uh, of the forest. Um, yeah, and I, I grew up with my two sisters at the time. Uh, my parents also fostered kids. So I had a foster brother and a foster uh, sister. Uh, and I think uh, that kind of um, opportunity to experience wild landscapes, just be let out the door of a weekend and go into the woods and to the forests gave me a real appreciation and understanding of kind of nature and the natural world. Um, and that's probably, you know, where the kind of foundation for my future career path uh, led me. Um, and then from there, um, I obviously attended a kind of local uh, secondary school um, and then moved to uh, a university. So it was an agricultural college in the southeast of England, Kent, um, where I did a degree in agriculture um, and uh, environmental uh, science, uh, really building on from my passions and my values as a result of my childhood um, experiences. Um, and then I, I suppose I've had quite a um, diverse career. Um, uh, originally, I uh, went to work for one of the biggest charities in the UK, uh, the National Trust, which is a big landowner in the UK and conservation charity. 
Um, I originally worked as a countryside manager, um, managing a number of um, nature reserves, countryside properties on behalf of the National Trust. So lots of countryside management, lots of environmental education uh, for school school kids, school um, trips. Um, and then um, from there, I, I actually uh, went overseas. So I went to Thailand um, for three years um, with um, an organization called uh, Voluntary Services Overseas. I think you have similar organizations in the United States. They're called Peace Corps um, in the United States. So VSO or Voluntary Services Overseas is the equivalent of the Peace Corps. And there I spent three years uh, working for the Royal Forestry Department as an environmental education advisor. I was living in a wildlife sanctuary between Bangkok and the Cambodian uh, border where I was working. I, I had to learn Thai, so I spent four months learning Thai. Um, and Thai is a very tonal language and I'm quite tone deaf, so I didn't find it easy um, but um, I then worked with forest rangers building a school's um, environmental education uh, program um, running a variety of courses all in Thai um, and, and addressing some of the challenges um, they faced in Thailand around things like deforestation uh, poaching forest fires um, it's an increasingly rapidly urbanized society and many of their national park, parks were, were facing many kind of challenges and pressures. And then when I went back to the UK, um, I went back into the kind of agriculture and food world um, and uh, I got a job um, with WWF, WWF UK, where um, I was asked to lead the development of their one Planet Food Programme. So this was a new programme for WWF UK at the time. They'd done a lot of work on sustainable commodities around palm oil, fish, uh, soya. Uh, they asked me to develop a programme that take, took quite a systems perspective, looking at how you address some of the environmental, social and economic impacts of food uh, production um, and uh, consumption. So lots of projects uh, within WWF on sustainable healthy diets, regenerative agriculture, food waste, working to influence policy and practice. Um, and there, from there I moved to another organization called Forum for the Future, um, based in the UK, but also offices in uh, United States, uh, uh, India, Southeast Asia, where I became uh, Associate Director of Sustainable Nutrition. So really working in that organization to support food and beverage companies with their sustainability strategies. So really embedding sustainability um, as part of the um, business uh, DNA. Um, and from there, obviously, moved on to the freelance uh, life uh, with a Taste in the Future. So quite a, quite a potted career journey uh, from those early beginnings. Completely different direction, and it, it's just relevant right now. How big of a deal are you perceiving that, this, that the upcoming coronation is in, in England? Uh, since you probably never lived through uh, the uh, previous one. Is, is that a big deal in the country? Could you repeat the question, Wayne? You were a bit quiet on the on the question. The coronation of the new king. That's oh, be, yes. How big well, is that? It is, it, well, it is, a, it, it is a big deal. It, it's, um, I think, a week on on Saturday. Obviously, uh, Queen Elizabeth reigned, you, you know, she was the longest reigning monarch we've ever um, had. Uh, um, 
and uh, you know her death was received with great uh, sadness she was really um admired uh, and respected for her public kind of service um um but obviously now we have a new uh, chapter and um king charles now is um you our new uh, monarch. He's actually somebody that's been very passionate, actually, about uh, the environment issues around climate change. Um, he has been quite passionate and articulate about some of the kind of issues around architecture in the UK, um, climate change, deforestation. He's he's being he's criticized by some for being too vocal. Uh, many think our monarchs should, you know, just form the public duty, but I really respect him uh, for, you know, following his passions uh, 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 and, and values. So in the UK on Saturday, there are lots of street parties, plans, celebrations. Uh, we've got a long uh, bank holiday. Um, on Coronation Day, it's it's actually also uh, uh, the 18th birthday of my um, twin daughters, Katie and Mari, turn 18 on the on the same day. I've got three daughters, uh, and they're the youngest of my three daughters. So it will be a day to celebrate in uh, more ways than one. Uh, Wayne, well, that was just because it's our only relevant once in many many years at least this time to ask that kind of a question so yeah <laughs> good question yeah so i, I was uh, arib told us earlier that he had put together a list of a whole bunch of questions i, I got to share this there are 40 of them here everybody <laughs> and they're all really good ones but um here's one that i thought was really pretty cool how do you envision the future of food systems just generally, and how do you foresee that tasting the future will play a role in that? So what do you see as our systems of food moving forward? Yeah, yeah, it's a really good question. It's a really big question. Um, but, you know, I think the, the way we eat, produce, consume, distribute food, in my view is, at the heart of many of the environmental, social, health challenges we confront, you know, in the 21st um, century. Um, there is no silver bullet um, solution. Um, we know, you know, our, globally our food system is a co contributes some at 30 to 34% of global greenhouse gas emissions. That's both through direct and indirect emissions. So many emissions occur through land use change through things like deforestation. Um, it is, WWF attributes it to some 80% uh, of global biodiversity loss. So we're living uh, through the sixth biggest e extinction episode of natural species, um, you know, in the last four billion years. Um, and yet at the same time, we have a global health crisis. Uh, we have um, an obesity crisis and associated non-communicable diseases. Probably a billion people um, obese or overweight, and yet perversely, 850 million suffering from um, from hunger. So, so food really goes to at the heart of some of those um, challenges. And, and so, my vision is really a vision for a food system that is fit for future generations, that restores both planetary. Um, and human health. Um, and I use visioning quite a lot um, with my work with um, both businesses and other organizations, because I think we have to 
I wouldn't be doing this work unless um, I was positive. I think um, human societies are innovative enough. There are some brilliant examples of innovation, social collaboration, coming together to address uh, some of these uh, challenges, which are, which are big, you know, um, scary, but I believe in the power of human innovation to be able to tackle uh, some of those uh, challenges. So in the UK, let's say specifically, um, how far away, do you ever hear them say, in the US here, we say that our food comes from an average of 1,500 to 2,000 miles away on average. <laughs> you hear that same kind of a statement in the UK? And, or is your food a little more localized than it is here in the States? No, it's probably about the same. So in the UK, uh, we import probably about 40% uh, of the food um, that we uh, consume. Um, so there are some real challenges, uh, challenges there. Um, I think particularly in the context of things like the war in Ukraine, uh, the resilience of food systems have been really highlighted. You know, if you think about the war and the impacts that has had on uh, fertilizer availability um, when Ukraine and Russia um, together, I think, produced kind of 40 to 50 percent of the world's fertilizers, that war in that part of the world saw a significant price spike in the cost of fertilizers. Uh, and obviously, um, Ukraine, parts of Russia are big exporters of wheat, and you notice significant price rises in things like wheat, um, which have affected particularly vulnerable countries in parts of um, Africa, for example. So, um, you know, I think uh, more localized food systems are important, not just from a sustainability perspective, but from a resilience uh, perspective. Um, unfortunately, you know, we do import a lot of our fresh fruit and vegetables from other parts of the world. Um, where I live in the county of Herefordshire, um, just before the Second World War, um, half the county uh, was planted up with uh, traditional fruit orchards, particularly apple orchards. Uh, we used to be. Um, quite reliant on the uh, production of um, apples and yet today 60% of our apples are imported from other parts of the world, um, predominantly New Zealand. Um, that does seem a little bit crazy to be importing apples uh, to the UK from New Zealand when we could perfectly adequately uh, grow them in the UK. So, so there are I think still significant opportunities to be a bit more uh, self-sufficient in the foods that can easily be grown uh, here in the UK. But obviously, our food systems have become quite globalised. There's nothing wrong with that, um, as long as it benefits the kind of local growers and communities. But I think opportunities to shorten our food supply chains in a in an increasingly volatile world will be increasingly important. So do you think that that we're making the proper gains in the farming communities that you do you see? I've been you know, very active in regenerative and sustainable agriculture. I am a farmer myself. I produce food, I produce fiber, uh, I produce a number of things, compost, and yet, and I've been doing it for 17, 18 years, and yet I don't see the growth that I would hope. At Earth Day this last weekend, which we celebrate on April 22nd every year, I think it's a, that's a worldwide sort of a thing, but at least here in the US, there were less booths at, a, at an Earth Day event that's been going on here for the whole 18 years that I've been here than there were last year, for example. Less companies there promoting regenerative so and sustainable sorts of living circumstances it's 
it's not a great trend, I don't see. I, do you see something better, I hope, over in the UK? I think there's a, yeah, it's, it's an interesting one, Wayne. I, I, I think, you know, there is a lot more uh, to be done. Uh, um, I've also got a small holding, um, quite a small, small holding. I've got 30 acres, so um, I like to connect my uh, my head with my hands and, and, and bury my own hands in the soil. So I also grow a lot of kind of fresh fruit and vegetables. I love kind of permaculture gardening. Um, I've been replanting a kind of traditional nut and fruit orchard and graze sheep uh, under uh, under that. Um, uh, and I think there's real opportunities to connect people uh, with the land. I think, um, you know, it, there, there is quite a debate um, about the role of the future of, uh, of, of farming. I think uh, the new buzzword, uh, as you've just mentioned, is kind of regenerative, uh, regenerative farming. Um, it's still happening at a quite a small scale. Also, although some of the bigger uh, companies now, the kind of General Millses of this world, uh, the Danones, um, you know, some of the big agri-food companies are starting to look at uh, regenerative agriculture, putting more carbon back into soils, increasing on-farm uh, biodiversity. I think it's still at the kind of margins. Um, there's a lot to be done to mainstream uh, regenerative um, agricultural practices, no-till farming, mulching, cover cropping, biochar, you know, there's some great kind of opportunities um, and techniques there. There's also a new movement around um, almost a step beyond regenerative farming around agroecological farming. So that's more of a social uh, movement looking at um, a kind of regenerating um, local communities, uh, developing social networks and peer to peer learning between uh, between farmers, um, but you know, many farmers, certainly in the UK, are, are really being squeezed, um, and we really need to support them further with that kind of transition to more nature-friendly, environmentally-friendly uh, forms of, uh, of farming. I know in the US, you, you know, you have the Farm Bill, for example that provides significant subsidies that influences farmer behavior. Um, in the UK, um, we've come out of the Brexit um, kind of uh, discussion. We're, we're now out of the EU, so we're not reliant on common agricultural policy subsidies. Um, and the UK government are now looking at you know, more subsidies providing money for public goods so providing farmers with uh, money for environmental improvements not just uh, food production so there are opportunities um, but uh, in my view it does need more uh, government um, support uh, to um, provide the fiscal incentives for farmers uh, to ensure you know, there, there is a just transition and farmers aren't penalised, um, but there is significantly much more work to be done uh, on that whole agenda. So a little more back on sort of a little personal things. We talked about your your grow, growing up and your family and such. Who was a person that during, let's say, your youth, um, from up up to university age, let's say, had a, had the most influence on you outside of your family, in terms of what you're now doing with tasting the future. Can you think of a person's name? That was yeah. There? So I um, that there's a really well known uh, naturalist here in the UK um called david attenborough I, i'm not sure whether you guys have come across him 
um, he's, um, he's done quite a lot of um, series. He did a real um, kind of series that really kind of opened my eyes uh, when I was probably eight, nine, ten, uh, or in my early teens. Um, he developed this series called Life um, on Earth. Uh, which was the first kind of um, nature series that really kind of looked at, um, you know, the wonders of, of, of life on Earth, the diversity of ecosystems, the relationships between us as humans um, and the natural world. Uh, he's, I think, 96, 97 now, um, and he's still producing these and natural history uh, programs. And I think, you know, he really influenced me um, as a child um, when I was quite, uh, quite young uh, 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 and opened my eyes to the wonders of the natural world and subsequently um, the kind of um, how we're impacting um, on the natural world and how actually intertwined uh, we are with that natural world and, and how ecosystems um, are really at the heart of, you know, our cultural, spiritual uh, well-being um, uh, and, and economic uh, well-being. And if we lose that natural capital, um, that, that then we really um, undermine the, the, the capital uh, of our future health um, and, and well-being. So, so he was, you know, one uh, one of those uh, people that really kind of inspired me at a young age. I think Wayne. That's awesome. Uh, yeah, I have heard of him and um, know about him a little bit. So, how about today? Who would you consider a mentor, a true mentor, as it relates to what you do in your business today? Tell us. Gosh. Yeah, it's a really, yeah, it's a really good question. Um, there, there are, I, I, yeah, I, I suppose there are so many kind of people that have kind of inspired me um, over the years. Um, I, I, I think um, that there are one or two people that I've met uh, from businesses that have really kind of inspired me. You know, I've been lucky enough to uh, work with um, over the years. Um, people like, I'm not sure whether you've heard of um, people like Paul Pullman, um, who led uh, Unilever, uh, Wayne. Um, but he, I suppose, really kind of inspired me in my early career uh, to really start thinking about um, systems transformation and the importance of looking at systems and how you can intervene um, across systems. He really transformed uh, Unilever, um, uh, you know, to, to ensure it became an organization that had sustainability at the heart of its business uh, DNA. So he really looked at new kind of business models, new ways of incentivizing his team from the factory floor all the way up to uh, kind of senior uh, management. So there are people like Paul that have uh, been a real inspiration to me certainly in the latter part um, of, of my career. So looking back on your career journey so far, what, what advice would you give someone just starting out? So remember back to those days, but what today would you give advice-wise? And they're starting out in the field of food sustainability or considering a career. What was the best advice that you think you could give them? So, so I think you know one is to follow your passion, follow your fo follow your um, values. Uh, I think you know 
getting your first foot on the rung of the ladder is, is always the most difficult um, difficult thing to, uh, to to do. You know, particularly when you're fresh out of university, you're often in a catch-22 situation. Really difficult to get jobs until you get kind of experience. Um, I, I actually, you know, started actually my career when I immediately left university. Uh, doing a bit of kind of internship uh, uh, and um, volunteering, getting that experience, getting to know uh, some of the players in the field that you want to work uh, within. Um, but yeah, follow your passions, follow your uh, follow your values. I think you know a, a lot of where I've perhaps been successful. Obviously, it is part of what I know, but actually more opportunities come from, you know, developing relationships and contacts uh, with people working within, uh, within the food system. So the importance of building relationships is absolutely key. And if you're passionate and enthusiastic about something, you know, don't give up at the first hurdle. It's it's easy to 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 to, to give up to give up um, when you meet a first hurdle. Keep on at it. Keep trying, and your passion and enthusiasm uh, will actually uh, will actually win uh, win through. And you might not land on your perfect job. Uh, I don't know if we ever land on our perfect job, um, but you know, try working for a variety of organizations if you're not quite sure um, whether you want to work for a business, an NGO, uh, you know, in the finance sector or in food production, wherever it might be, um, try a variety of, of roles um, at, at, and jobs, uh, you know, as part of your, 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 early, uh, your early career. Cool. Well, this is a question from the audience. Um, do you see a trajectory that a majority of people would would uh, would pay more for organic or carbon neutral products? Do you think they're willing to pay more? Um, that that's a really uh, that's a really good question. Um, so. I I'm not so sure. I I I think you know con consumers. Uh, you know, if if it affects consumers in the pocket, a lot of the research suggests that consumer behaviour, what they put in their supermarket trolley, it, 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 you know, price is basically the overwhelming driver, even if they're concerned about uh, sustainability uh, issues. It's usually price, uh, taste, um, often healthiness. Sustainability comes quite low down when it comes to uh, changing consumer behavior. Consumers may say they're concerned uh, by sustainability, but if, if it affects them in their pocket, and particularly the poorest and, and most vulnerable in society, then they won't pay for it. I think we do need to price in carbon to our food system, but actually that needs to be that needs to happen uh, through other ways and through other mechanisms. We don't really pay the true cost of food. If we were really to pay the true cost of food, we would be paying three times as much for the food uh, that we do today. Um, we'd be paying once uh, for the food in our supermarket trolley, once in terms of the health costs. If you think of the public health costs uh, of obesity, non-communicable diseases, antimicrobial resistance to society, it's huge. And we pay again for the environmental costs. So we have to really um, think about rebalancing the true cost of food um, and reorientating 
subsidies, fiscal incentives in, and in, uh, incentives to reward farmers for things like regenerative agriculture, um, ensure that low carbon foods like fresh fruit and vegetables um, are subsidized um, and high carbon foods like intensively produced meats, dairy, etc., which probably get 90% of their subsidies are disincentivized. So this is about, for me, leveling the playing field, ensuring subsidies go towards more low carbon foods um, and uh, influencing uh, consumer uh, behaviors through other fiscal incentive uh, mechanisms. Uh, but if it's it gonna impact the price of food consumers pay, th they just won't pay it, particularly when many societies are being impacted through a cost of living crisis as we're going through uh, today. So here's another one that uh, I have, plus I think in our audience they have. How do you stay updated today on the latest trends, technologies, and research, let's say, in the food sustainability space? You personally, what, what's the way you do it? Do you do it on the internet? Do you? So, so I do attend lots of uh, conferences, seminars. I, I do a lot of research. So I work quite a lot with the academic um, community um, with the latest kind of technological social innovation trends. Um, but I suppose where I pick up most of it is uh, talking to those companies farmers, um, food distributors, food traders, you know, that are at the cutting edge of, of this work. So it's about having conversations um, and conversations in different parts of the world. And I do a lot of kind of horizon scanning and trends analysis um, because you know businesses need to be thinking more long term often businesses have a kind of two or three year business plan or csr strategy they don't look out into the long term the trends that are going to impact them on the next five uh, or ten uh, years and if they're not prepared for those trends they won't have a business in 10 years it's a bit like the company Kodak's not a food business, but it was a it was a photography company that wasn't prepared for the digital uh, revolution um, and therefore went out of business quite quickly. Um, so yeah, I, I suppose I pick up trends from a variety of sources, but probably most significantly from having uh, conversations uh, with uh, businesses that are involved in the food system and, and these trends are kind of there are global macro trends there are industry trends there are kind of niche trends uh, and these trends do vary depending on where you're sitting um it, it you know it, it in the world trends that are relevant to europe and north america might not be same um you know, in, in Southeast Asia, where sustainability and consumer consciousness of sustainability is only now just starting uh, to 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 get onto the onto the radar. Again, a little bit off the topic, but just curiosity: Have you stayed up with your ability to both speak and read Thai? <laughs> No, unfortunately not. I um yeah, when when I was in Thailand I did have a have a Thai girlfriend and that always helped um with a with with a Thai language, but I I left Thailand, gosh, twenty odd years ago. Um and apart from having an odd meal and conversation in a Thai restaurant, um I've never really had an opportunity uh, to use it. So I'm a bit rusty. I might be able to say my, you, you know, name in Thai or something like that, or say hello in Thai, but 
uh, to have a conversation or to do a training in Thai, there's no way I would be able to do it now. I think that's one thing I kind of really regret because staying in somewhere like Thailand, you know, living and working within the community, you really get to know the culture, you get to meet the local people, um, and you're you're really embedded in in the culture and community, um, which is what I what I loved, and it's a memory that will always stay with me. Uh, apart from obviously being very rusty in the Thai language now, but hey ho, that's one of those things. So this is a question I try to ask almost everybody that I talk with, and that's that. Um, and it's one that John Lee Dumas, who is one of my mentors in the podcasting area, he does a podcast called Entrepreneur on Fire, and it's he does it daily, or it is put out daily, and he's done it for something like 10,000 plus straight days now. A wow. Long <laughs> no, that's, that's not it's not 10,000 because that would be 10 years. Or with, <laughs> I was going to say, that's a long time. No, but it's, I think it's in the 21, 2200. He's done it almost like eight years in, in a row. And he doesn't do it like daily. He records 10 sessions on, on one day, and then those 10 will be the next 10 days. And then 10 days later, he records uh, uh, 10 more sessions. But you can imagine it gets a little tough to, to you run out of people to interview. But anyway, here's a question he asks just about everybody, which is, Tell us about something that has happened in your life that at the time it happened, it seemed like it was just the most horrible thing that could ever occur. But now when you look back on it, it had a really positive future outcome on your life. And you can wow, be that's quite a question, isn't it? Yeah, you can be specific or you can be really general. And by the way, he never preps people, and I don't either, for that question. So it is one that kind of comes out of the blue. Yeah, gosh, I, I think it probably, you know, for me has to be around kind of a, you know, relationship when I was much younger, you know, really kind of um, heavily involved in a, in a long-term uh, relationship. Um, that kind of broke down for for you know a variety of, of reasons, and it was quite traumatic, you know at the at the time, you know got kind of quite quite depressed and drinking and that kind of stuff, but actually, looking back now, it actually kind of helped me think with a lot of kind of clarity unless you really experience those really kind of low points i don't think you can experience the high points in your life and i think a number of years further on i reflect back that actually you know i was very young at the time i was probably quite immature didn't really have kind of life experiences but actually that was probably the best thing that could ever have happened to me um, and led me into a kind of, at, at the time, that's why I kind of went to Thailand and that opened up all sorts of opportunities, um, opened up my career, opened up my own horizons um, and really a kind of gave me time for self-reflection in terms of you know, what I really value um, in life um, and what really kind of makes me kind of happy and what makes me tick. So, it, you know, I suspect quite a lot of people will say something like that, but reflecting back, that's probably something that was really kind of traumatic at the time, but actually um, opened all sorts of doors opportunities in my own eyes uh, in, in in the long term i think wayne very cool here's a much more fun one <laughs> what tool and it could be a physical tool or it could be an internet related tool anything that you've used for the first time in the last six months let's say 
that you would highly recommend to someone else that they ought to get or use? What tool? So um, I've I've, I've come across um, something so so on my kind of um, uh, small holding, I um, have come across a tool called a bill hook. Have you have you heard of a bill hook, Wayne? I have. No. So tell me. It, it, it's kind of like a it, it's like a machete with a curved. It's called a bill hook because it's got a very curved blade it's about yeah. a foot long with a wooden ha with a wooden handle it's got yeah. a kind of straight back um a, a bill hook it's quite a traditional farmer's tool certainly in the uk um that was invented five or six hundred years ago actually uh, and i came across it because it's a tool um, that I've used recently in um, hedging. So in the UK, um, as a result of the enclosure movement in the 17th and 18th century, a lot of our land was enclosed using uh, stone or um, earth banks uh, on yeah. top of which um, you grow trees, so you have these kind of traditional what we call hedgerows. You don't see them so much in the US, but it's very characteristic of the British landscape, these very small fields enclosed in hedgerows with lots of trees. And traditionally, farmers used to manage those hedgerows um, by um, layering the hedge. Um, and to do this, they used a tool called a billhook. Um, and to layer a hedge, you cut the back of a stem of a tree that's about five or six years old. So you don't cut straight through it. You bend over it so the sap can still rise and it kind of sprouts up and thickens the hedgerow, makes a great wildlife friendly hedgerow. But this is a specific tool uh, which is used in that process. And I, I absolutely love it um and i love using it and i love the process of seems like it's, um, a while. it's called seems like it's taken you a while to find it because you sound like <laughs> it does. Yeah. i didn't Why? really know it exists until I, I i spoke to this older farmer that uh, has always done a lot of um hedge laying it hedge laying is a really traditional skill that's kind of died out because every autumn now farmers cut these hedgerows using uh tractor hedge you know mechanical flails that that just flail it and so they don't lay these hedgerows um they used to take timber out in, in the olden days layer them to make the hedgerows stock proof um yeah and, and the bill hook was the traditional tool for the job so uh yeah uh just an interesting little tool that, that, that I've discovered fairly recently. So here's another one from the audience. So what would you replace honeysuckle in a riparian buffer with? Well, that's where this is Karen. She's one of my staff. She always has <laughs> what was well, the I, I, this might be too specific for you, but what would you replace honeysuckle in a riparian buffer with? Would it be better to remove the honeysuckle in a riparian buffer if that um, if that is 70% of the buffer? And I don't even know. Do you have honeysuckle there? We do have honeysuckle. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's a climbing it's a, it's a climbing plant that 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 grows through hedgerows, grows up up trees um it's a great nectar source for oh. um insects um so, so the more honeysuckle in my in my view um <laughs> uh, uh, the better it also lets off this amazing scent so you can you it's got a very sweet smelling scent and you can smell the perfume uh, particularly in the early morning or, 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 or late um, or, or late evening. So um, 
I don't think you can have enough of it. So I, I've never, you wouldn't never think about problem it. or dominating anything. So, <laughs> um, what would you say is your most um, the the one exotic that you've got on your holding that you would get rid of if you could? Can you repeat the question, Wayne? Sorry, that's what would be a plant that is not native it's an exotic ah. that you have on your holding that you would get rid of if you could in uh, what, what, oh, what is okay what? yeah there's a plant called um himalayan balsam uh also known as policeman's helmet locally um that um as the plant name suggests um, originated from the uh, Himalayas. Um, it's a very invasive species along our waterways and uh, and rivers. It grows very, very quickly. It produces these deep purple flowers and um, the seeds, um, it has a mechanism whereas the seeds dry, there's a kind of spring-like mechanism that springs when they get to a certain dryness, it automatically fires these seeds. They can go for, you know, 10, 15, 20 feet, um, float down a river, but they can really dominate our rivers um, and uh, waterways to the exclusion of quite a lot of native um, uh, flora and fauna. So that's one invasive species I would definitely uh, get rid of. I, again, I don't know whether you have it in the United States or it might be called something else, I don't know. No, I've not heard of it. And I, it might be in another part of the country. Aaron, who asked the question about honeysuckle said that honeysuckle is absolutely an invasive in Ohio, which is where she's from. Oh, okay. It's Quite, not here. It's, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure it's a native here. Yeah. yeah. That might be why. It's a native there and therefore good. And, and here it's yeah. <laughs> that's what that's why I was a bit confused with the question, I think. Uh, well, we are getting close to the top of the hour here and we like to be very cordial to our speaker, to Mark and then also to you in the audience. And a lot of you have stayed on here and been around since the very start. That's very cool, thank you. Um, Alicia, by the way, I didn't acknowledge her, but she always puts in lots of really cool references, Mark. She's a, a regular of ours. And so you, I'll be sending you this, you'll get a replay of this. And so you'll have it. You might look at the, the things that Alicia put in because they're usually very insightful. Oh, I will, um, I will, have, a, I will have a look. I can't yeah. see anything on my screen, but um, I would definitely no, have a look at the replay. Wouldn't necessarily see them. Anyway, <laughs> um, let's let you finish by by just giving us what would be a a, a last message that you want to give to all of us, and 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 just just end it with that. I suppose just you know, obviously, food is at the heart of everything I do. I I enjoy you know eating it and it's a connector for family and cultures you know and it's a heart of some of the you know some of the challenges I, I, I mentioned so you know ju just I think uh, we can all make a difference by the kind of food choices that you know that we, we're certainly in the west lucky enough to make three times uh, three times a day so think carefully um, about the food choices uh, you make, you know, it, it has a big impact on planetary health, human health, and the impact of, of, you know, farmers and livelihoods, often many, many thousands um, of miles, uh, miles away. So, um, yeah, I'll perhaps just leave you with that kind of thought, really. Well, Mark, thank you very much. This was really enjoyable to me i had fun did you i hope yes i had much fun and i like your questioning style wayne i like the informality of it and some quite left of field questions um uh, amongst it which uh, makes for, for, for a nice change 
you can steal them and use them yourself. As you yeah, I might. <laughs> <laughs> well, Mark, thank you so much. Audience, thank you. Uh, Alicia says, keep up the good work. Give us some ones if you can. People as our clapping is what you do online. We're seeing some ones come in. That's cool. And Mark, have a great rest of take rest for the rest of your day. And then maybe we can do this again sometime. I'd love it. It'd be fun. Yeah. Yeah. Up. I might have a hot drink. It's 10 o'clock here and uh, might have a hot, hot, hot drink before heading for bed. But enjoy the rest of your um, afternoon, evening, morning, wherever you are. Thank you, Mark. And Mark. All right. Take care. Cheers. Bye. Bye. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT community podcast.